Amen. That's good. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat. Continuing in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on a Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Father, I ask that you'd help me to share only that which is truthful and that which is helpful. Jesus, I ask that we would look upon your death and in so doing, like, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness that all who looked would receive life. May we look upon you, our Savior, crucified and exalted, raised up, and may we receive life. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. One of the tragic ironies of life is that very often, good things, worthwhile things, only come on the other side of hard things and tragic things. This can be simple, this can be massive. I think of something simple like, like a family getting a new house. And what a great joy that is and what a great privilege it is to have this new house. But maybe you've experienced this. There's sadness at the loss of the house where you first brought your children home from the hospital. I think of my friend who, who just got a new job. It's a, it's a good job, better pay, better benefits, a shorter commute, more time to be able to spend with family. But it comes at the loss of a different job that, he spent nearly two decades at, and he liked, and he had friends there. 
Maybe it's something more serious. I've talked with people who have served in the armed forces and, and they've said things to me like, and I'm not exaggerating, they've said things like, the only reason that I'm standing here talking to you is because someone else in my company ran out and drew the enemy fire and gave their life so that I could be here standing in front of you. I even think of our own Pastor Shane, who, if you don't know, a little over a month ago had a heart attack, a a massive, near-fatal heart attack, and God has been gracious to preserve his life. I remember when we got the text from Pastor Kyle that a new heart had become available and they were going to do a transplant in the morning. The, The swing of emotion was about that quick from, praise God, a transplant heart is available to Oh my God, someone just died. So that heart would become available. You know, on Good Friday, we look at the death of Jesus. And we could look at the death of Jesus from any number of different angles. The death of Jesus is incredible. It's the focal point of human history. Tonight, I invite you to look at it at this angle of of the good, the life that comes through the death of Jesus. And, and I'm inviting you to look at it through this angle because it's Jesus himself that invites us to look at his death this way. As we've been going through the gospel of John for about a year and a half, maybe some of you have been around, you remember back in John chapter 12 where Jesus himself said that the hour has come for his glorification. And he says these words, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus gives the simplest of examples. A seed must die and go into the earth. And only if that seed dies and goes into the earth, will it be able to bring much fruit? Will it be able to bring much life? And friends, that simple illustration serves to point us to the reality that it is the ultimate death, the death of Jesus that brings us ultimate life eternal life. That this ultimate life only comes through the ultimate death. And we're going to consider three things about this life that that Jesus gives to us. We're going to consider that when we receive this ultimate life from Jesus, we have confidence, a, a conviction of knowing what we believe. That this life that he gives to us brings us cleansing a washing and a purification from our sins, and that this ultimate life brings us courage, that we can be brave in our pursuit of Jesus. Let's consider the first of these three, confidence. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. This is the Jewish feast of Passover, and there's a whole week of festivities that follow Passover, and there's a Sabbath that happens right in the middle of this Passover, and it's a particularly special day, and the Jewish people did not want there to be dead bodies left up overnight. The, the Romans would, would drag crucifixion on for days and days at a time, and these Jewish leaders did not want the dead bodies up there so that the land would not be defiled and they could celebrate the feast in peace. They went to Pilate, the Roman governor, not a Jewish person, and they asked that the legs of these criminals might be broken. See, crucifixion is perhaps the most barbaric 
method of execution ever devised by mankind. And it is not the nailing of the hands and the feet to the cross that would kill a person. In fact, scholars will tell us that it is most commonly death by asphyxiation. There was a little small seat that would be placed under the buttocks of the, vi- the, the victim who's being crucified. And, and while they remained, they could use their legs and use their arms to pull themselves up so that air would remain in their lungs. And the Romans liked this to drag on for a long time. But here the Jewish leader said, hey, would you please break their legs so that they would no longer be able to support themselves. The air would go out of their lungs and they will die more quickly so we can get on with our celebration. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. They're working from outside in. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, They did not break his legs. Pastor Doug shared a moment ago when we were celebrating communion that Jesus gave up his spirit. It is Jesus himself who said, no one takes my life away from me, but I give it up of my own accord. Yes, Jesus was the victim of injustice, but Jesus knew what he was doing. So they did not break his legs, but maybe just to be sure, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came blood and water. We're going to focus on that in a minute. Hold on to that. Look at what John now says, this little parentheses. He who saw it has borne witness. Who is the one who saw it? Who is speaking here? This is our author, John. I'm going to read it. I'm going to, I'm going to rephrase it a little bit. I saw it. I'm bearing you witness. My testimony is true. And I know that I'm telling the truth so that you also, like me, may believe. And then John goes on. He says, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. John is saying, I was there. I watched the nails go into his hands and feet. I watched the spear go into his side. I could see the blood and the water flowing. I'm an eyewitness. I didn't make this up. You can believe my testimony. But then John takes it even a step further. He says, don't just believe my testimony, believe the prophetic witness of the scriptures. You may have noticed in these verses, there are, there are two, uh, and the scripture says, type of verses. As we've been going through this passage tonight, there's actually two others for a total of four. John tells us four things that are fulfilled in the death of Jesus, that are prophesied about a long time before Jesus was ever born. For example, you may have noticed that when they were casting lots for his garments back in verses 23 and 24, this is a reference to Psalm 22, where King David, a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, said, These enemies divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Friends, a thousand years. A thousand years is a long time. 
Those words were written. King David also said, you may have noticed when, when Jesus was drinking the sour wine. Back in verses 28 through 30, King David also wrote in Psalm 69, my enemies gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me, what do you think? Sour wine to drink. Here John says that his legs were not broken. This would have been a customary thing to have happen. It didn't happen to Jesus. Why? So that the scripture would be fulfilled. Scriptures like Exodus chapter 12, where Moses giving instructions for the Passover lamb says that when you prepare the lamb for the Passover meal, you shall not break any of its bones. That was written, oh, by the way, 1500 years before Jesus was ever born. And John also points out that he would be pierced. Zechariah chapter 12, the prophet Zechariah, a mere five or six hundred years before Jesus was ever born. Zechariah said that in the days of the Messiah, God promises that he will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and a plea for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn. Friends, the point is this. Jesus' death gives us life and that life is marked by confidence. That we have the eyewitness testimony of John who was there. You know, we began this night by singing, were you there? And emotionally, yes, it's true, but practically, no. Despite some of you who want to make, you know, old people jokes to your parents who you're with. Nobody's quite that old. We were not there physically. We were not there present. But we have the eyewitness testimony of one who was. And what's more, we have the prophecies about the Messiah recorded for us so that we know that when we look upon the death of Jesus on the cross, this was not some accident that just sort of happened. It was not an anomaly of history. It was planned by God. And we can have confidence that Jesus is who he said that he was. He said that he came from heaven. He said that he is the son of God. And he said that forgiveness of sins is possible through his death and through his resurrection. Now, this does not mean that we never have any doubts or questions. I have questions. I struggle with doubts. Anybody with me? But when we look upon the death of Jesus, we can have confidence that the gospel is true. That God loves us. That Christ died for us. That forgiveness is available in the name of Jesus Christ. Look back at me with verse 34. When one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. This um, section that we're looking at, by the way, there's a, we're covering almost a chapter tonight. And there's a lot, I, like I could do six months worth of sermons just on this chapter. I won't because that would make it like three years that we're in the Gospel of John. But this verse alone, we could probably spend Two months? It's not a threat. I'm just saying. I started reading and I started compiling all the different perspectives on on what does it mean that blood and water came out of the side of Jesus. 
For many commentators, they they point to the medical side of things, that this proves that Jesus really was dead. And this gets into a lot of stuff that I frankly don't understand. Uh, You know, the pericardial sack and fluid leaking into the chest cavity. And when there's these, you know, two different fluids, blood and water, it shows that the person is really dead. I, I believe that there's a lot of validity to that. I read some St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, oh, obviously Noah's Ark had its opening in the side so that people could come in and be saved from the judgment of God in the flood. So too, we enter in to Christ and receive salvation through the side opening of Christ. You guys should read the church fathers. They say fun things. (laughs) I think there's some validity to that. Others point out that when the children of Israel were in the desert with Moses, that they struck the rock and out of the side of the rock flowed water and the children of Israel were saved from death and their thirst by the water that flowed from the rock. And in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul says, well, the rock was Christ and we're all left scratching our heads. How can that be? And and here we see the water flowing from the side of Jesus, our rock. Others point us to the sacraments, that, that the water represents baptism and the blood represents communion. These two practices, these two ordinances that believers always practice to identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And even one more, I, I'd not heard this one, but Rodney Whitaker said that it's a picture for some that Jesus is both God and man. It was a common belief, he says, in the Hellenistic world that the gods did not have blood in their veins, but rather had a clear liquid known as Ichor. For such folk, the fact that blood and water both flowed could suggest that Jesus is both God and man. I think that all of those are worth pondering. All of those are worth considering. I think they're all beautiful. There's one additional angle. And it's the one I want to focus on for just a moment here, and it's this. If you think through the gospel of John, I've had the great privilege of of preaching through the gospel of John now for about a year and a half. And when you think through the gospel of John, when you see water time and time again, what comes up is the theme and the idea of cleansing. I thought of that, and then I'm always happy when I find a scholar later who agrees with what I thought of. N.T. Wright said that this idea of blood and water was not written just for the sake of historical detail, even though that's vital. He says, John has left us in no doubt that in all these details were all to be seen as heaven-sent signs of what it all meant. We have only to think back through the gospel to all the occasions where water or blood are mentioned to realize that again and again they point to Jesus as the source of life, cleansing, and purification. Think about John the baptizer, not the author John, John the baptizer, washing people in the river, telling them to repent of their sins and receive cleansing. Think about when Jesus turned water into wine. It says that the water was stored in large jars that were for the ritual of purification. Think about Jesus the night of the Last Supper, taking off his outer garment and kneeling down and washing his disciples' feet with water, saying, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part of me. You have no part of my kingdom. I've been reading a book recently. It's written by a non-Christian author. He's a psychologist. It's a very interesting book. He's trying to explain 
from a non-Christian perspective, where does morality come from? And so it's interesting to, to listen to somebody kind of ask those questions, but he, he, he brings up this really interesting thing that has come up in, in scientific research and psychological research that no matter how modern we get, no matter how progressive we get, no matter how enlightened we get, for certain sins, there's, there's this connection and there's this feeling of revulsion. There's this feeling of yuck. Do you know what I'm talking about, friends? And it's not just the sins that we commit. It's, it's if we hear or see someone else committing, you know, it's, it's not just that our own sins defile us and make us feel dirty, but sometimes the sins of other people do that to us as well. He cited, this is, you'll have to go look this up on your own. I read through the study that was released. He, he quoted a study where someone had people stand next to a bottle of hand sanitizer and when they stood close to the bottle of hand sanitizer, the answers to their questions got more morally upright. That's all I, can, I, that's all I have time for to say about that. But it's just, it's interesting to hear people who are not followers of Jesus agree with what the Bible teaches that sin defiles us. And it is in the blood and the water that flow from Jesus' side where we find our washing and our cleansing. When Pastor Doug was reading that verse about the sour wine, it says that the the sour wine was lifted up to Jesus on the branch of what kind of tree? A, A hyssop tree. Again, John doesn't waste words. I am convinced he means for us to call to mind the words of Psalm 51 where the psalmist David prays out, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Friends, Jesus' death brings us life and that life is clean. When you are plunged into that stream, of the blood and the water that flow from Jesus' side, you are forgiven and you are washed. And the things that you have done and the things that have been done to you no longer hold power over you because a new life has entered into you, a life that is clean. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, this is a new person that comes into the story here who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly why because he was afraid of these Jewish leaders he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate actually surprised we should be surprised at this Pilate gave him permission so he came and took away his body Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night I love that John points it out remember he came by night in darkness also scared came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they said, hey, this will work. Let's just lay Jesus here. I'll tell you about Nicodemus and Joseph these two disciples that the camera zooms in on for a moment. First of all, they were both members of what's called the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish ruling council, 
We learned that back in John chapter three about Nicodemus. It said that Nicodemus was one of the rulers. We learn about uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea in places like Mark chapter 15. It also tells us that he was a rich man. These are important, powerful, rich people who are both afraid of the Jewish leaders. They have a lot to lose, don't they? People who have a lot have a lot to lose. If you've got money, if you've got prominence, if you've got power, if you've got prestige, if you've got other people's respect, it can be hard to, to, to follow Jesus. It can be hard to say your, your peace because, man, you've got a lot to lose. It actually tells us in Luke's gospel that Joseph was only uh, one of the few who dissented from the decision to press forward with uh, putting Jesus on trial. He dissented from it. But what's beautiful in this passage here is that both go all in with Jesus. Think about this. Joseph goes to Pilate. Joseph has been involved with the trial. Joseph has been involved with the proceedings. Do you think he might have had some butterflies in his stomach to go before Pilate to ask for the body when he just witnessed Pilate have Jesus scourged and crucified? Nicodemus brings, did you catch that? 75 pounds of spices. That's like what? A fifth grader? Like, for those of you who are, you know, serving in the kids ministry during our last gathering, that's a, that's a lot of spices, which means, like, have you ever seen someone carry 75 pounds? That's going to be a little bit noticeable, And if he's not carrying it himself, that means he has either a donkey or some servants following along with him. So he's got an entourage. Nicodemus, who previously came to Jesus by night, is now hoofing it with 75 pounds of spices going all in in his identification with Jesus. Did you notice that both men defiled themselves by touching a dead body here during the Passover, meaning that they would no longer be able to celebrate the remainder of the feast days? I wonder, I wonder if they put two and two together that Jesus is now their new Passover. And it says that Joseph, this is actually his own tomb. It's unused and it's brand new. Friends, the point here is that Jesus' death brings us a life that is filled with courage. As followers of Jesus, there are going to be times where what you do and what you say does not make sense from the perspective of the world. And yet when you, along with John and along with Nicodemus and along with Joseph, have seen the crucified and resurrected Messiah, you start to think things like, I don't have to fear. What can a man do to me? My salvation is secure. My life is hidden with Christ on high. Of whom shall I be afraid? You start to say things like the Apostle Paul, you know, the, 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 I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, what's the worst thing they could do? Kill you, and then you depart and be present with the Lord for eternity. That's okay. Jesus' life brings us a life of courage. All this great life comes out of the incredible reversal of Jesus' death. There's one more simple reversal I want to share with you to begin to turn our attention forward towards Easter Sunday. 
Did you notice in verse 41, it said, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Friends, if you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible, and you see the word garden, where do we first see a garden? Right in the beginning. That God created a beautiful garden where he and mankind could enjoy close relationship. And the first man, the first Adam, rebelled against God. And because of Adam's rebellion, death was brought into the world. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can't, it can't bear fruit. And so here, Jesus' corpse is placed into the ground like a seed. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Warren Gage, said this. He said, as the first Adam made a garden into a grave, so the last Adam makes a grave into a garden. Jesus' death brings life. Jesus' death brings life, a life that is confident, confident about what we believe, a life that is cleansed and washed and purified and a life that's full of courage, of knowing who our Savior is. In a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the musicians to come to lead us in some singing before we go. But I wonder if you would pray with me right now that we would receive that life from Jesus. God, I thank you for the words of the scripture that are given to us that we might know the Savior and we might receive his life. God, for all of us who are here who are followers of Jesus, I pray that we would be re-infused, we would be reinvigorated with that life, the divine life that comes through the death of Jesus. Would you help us to have a deeper conviction, a deeper confidence about who you are and what the gospel is? Jesus, for those who are here who are struggling with feeling unclean and dirty, Jesus, would they feel the cleansing stream of the water that flows from your side tonight? And God, be there any of us who struggle with with fear of man and a lack of courage, God, would you embolden us that we would not fear being identified with you, Lord Jesus. God, if there's anyone here in this room tonight who does not yet know you, who has not entrusted themselves to you. Lord God, would you grab a hold of their hearts right now? Would you do that work that only you can do to bring a dead heart to life? To bring a dead spirit to life? Would you assure them of your love? Would you assure them of your cleansing and your pardon? That we see the cross of Christ. Help us now as we sing to lift these songs up to you like prayers of worship and thanksgiving for the life that you give us through your death. In Jesus' name, amen.